Hey, y'all. You know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also, fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. And I don't know what everybody has done wrong because we might be dealing with aliens. We might be dealing with past <laughs> lives. We might be dealing with a dreamscape that can only be acquired through transcendental meditation. Like, I don't have my footing at all. I don't feel like I know which way is up. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada, and this week, the FBI has sent us to a peculiar small town in the Pacific Northwest to investigate a series of mysterious crimes. We finally watched the first season of Twin Peaks. (laughs) Finally! (laughs) Everyone has been dying for us, Kat, to watch this show, clearly. It's true. I've faced a lot of grief over the years. Oh, about it. true. You have is true. All right, real quick, there is a content warning. Twin Peaks deals with sexual violence and murder, so please listen ahead with caution. We will obviously be addressing some of those things. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. Sarah, what is it? Is Laura with you? No. Why? She didn't go with you this morning. No? What, honey, what's wrong? She's not here. She wasn't here this morning. Yeah, he's right over there on the phone. Sheriff Truman. What? Who? This is a terrible moment for all of us. For all of us. A cult classic that has legions of devoted fans even three decades after its debut, Twin Peaks premiered on ABC in 1990, running for two seasons before its cancellation. In 1992, a prequel-slash-sequel film, Fire Walk With Me, was released, and the series was ultimately revived for a third season in 2017 on Showtime. Created by Mark Frost and David Lynch, Twin Peaks is at times surreal, supernatural, melodramatic, and terrifying. Often, it's all of these things at once. It stars Kyle MacLachlan as FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, who descends upon the town to solve the murder of Laura Palmer, a high schooler found naked and wrapped up in plastic on the riverbank. Family, friends, and adversaries in the town are played by an ensemble cast that includes Piper Laurie, Ray Wise, Peggy Lipton, Richard Boehmer, Russ Tamblin, Joan Chen, Lara Flynn Boyle, Sherilyn Fenn, Machen Amick, and many, many, many more. Joining us to talk about Twin Peaks is award-winning game developer, writer, and arts manager who's currently creative producer and writer on the upcoming indie survival horror driving game, Dead Static Drive. I can't wait for this game to come out. (laughs) She's also co-authored a book on misogyny and video games culture called Game Changers from Minecraft to Misogyny, the Fight for the Future of Video Games. Welcome to the show, Lena Van Deventer. Thank you. Deventer? Deve- did I do it? Did I get it? No, but that's fine. <laughs> no, I messed up by trying to type the pronunciation. Kat changed your name, the spelling, to make it phonetic, and it fucked it that's up. Fine. Okay, say it again. Van Deventer. 
No, no, no. Say your, say say it properly. Lena Van Deventer. There you go. Van Deventer. Hello, Lena Van Deventer. <laughs> I can say my friend's name. I've been friends with you for so long. Uh, it's all right. Everyone gets it. Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. I'm it's fine. You're, yeah, get out. All right. So I specifically wanted you on this episode because you love David Lynch. I do. A lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I was like, who better than Lena, who posts all the weird David Lynch shit on the internet constantly? Um, so I will get into how Kat and I just actually randomly started watching this for the first time at the same time, which is coincidentally why we're doing this episode but like what is it what is your relationship to lynch's work like what why tell tell us what you i i i love lynch's work because i feel like he has this utopia in mind despite the fact that he you know often works a lot in violent you know content especially violence against women i think he actually has that in his work a lot because his utopia doesn't have that in it you know, his utopia for the world mm. wants to show that this is an anomaly and a, and a, you know, a blight and a bad thing, but not a force of nature, not something that has to be there. So I feel like his work to me, you know, he, he writes men as people, not as sharks and, you know, mindless rape machines, you know, like he, he actually writes men as people. And I feel like I'm drawn to that because I feel like a lot of, a lot of pop culture especially in the last sort of 15, 20 years, it shows men as like an inherent danger, you know, and that's not in my utopia. I don't want to go through the world looking at every man as if he's a potential threat in some way. I want like, I want men to be able to make art about how much they love beautiful women and for that to not be a problem, you know, for it to not make our little, you know, our little ears prick up and go, "Mm, is that because he wants to take advantage of them? Like what a horrible way to look at the world. So I feel like, um, I, I'm drawn to his work because I like how he writes men. <laughs> wow. Mm. You have just, in one and a half sentences, completely unpacked all of the trouble I'm having getting through Twin Peaks. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Very interesting. We're going to get more into it later. And Now, one question I have is, like, I actually – and I haven't, I'm not like a David Lynch completist. I've seen um, Mulholland Drive, Blue Velvet, The Elephant Man. Those are the only ones that come to mind. But like, do you think Twin Peaks is like emblematic of David Lynch? Or do you feel like it is kind of its own thing because it's not entirely his creation? And, you know, how do you think it fits into the the world of... Yeah, I don't think it's strictly Lynchian. I think it's definitely got a lot of David Frost in there still, I think. Um, just don't ask me to pinpoint exactly which bits because I'm not that familiar with Mark Frost's oeuvre either. But um, I think I think it's the softer version of of what he might have otherwise done. You know, if it was just him by himself, I think it might have been a bit weirder. And we did see that in the later. I know I'm not, not going to talk about the later seasons too much because the is not there yet, but <laughs> um, it does get pretty freaking weird um, at one point. But weird doesn't make it Lynchian. Yeah. There's that meme going around that just because it's weird doesn't make it Lynchian. Um, I think right. Green Peak sits on its own as sort of like the the comfort food of his work. Yeah. I feel like that's what a lot of people do with Bjork also. Yeah. Is they don't actually see the 
type of musician that she is or the type of artist that she is. They're just like, oh, but she's the funny, weird one. Yeah. And that really reduces it to nothing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she's so incredibly talented and just like innovative over and over again. We should do an episode about Bjork. Okay, I am uh, confused (laughs) by your statements. (laughs) Drag her. her. Uh, And and so I'm really excited to unpack this. But before we do that, okay, I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast, so maybe we keep it brief. But maybe not. I don't remember. But Kat, your partner has been wanting you to watch Twin Peaks for eons. Yeah. So uh, we met because of 90s television. Uh, We met through a mutual friend who's also named Lene. She's known as the musician prom queen. You can. She just did the song for Heidi Klum's Halloween costume reveal. Whatever that means. But she's amazing. Was an incredible costume. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah, it was the worm. yeah for the worm. Uh, so Lini does the uh, theme song for my nine hundred two and O podcast. That's how I know her, and she knew my partner through the Twin Peaks fandom, and happened to be in town at the same time, and that's how he and I met right before the pandemic. Wow. Uh, so obviously, big thing we were talking about was these like nineties pop culture things that we're really obsessed with. And I just was like, yeah, I don't know why I haven't ever really gotten into Twin Peaks. So many of my friends are into it. My big sister always loved it. And so I wanted to like what she liked. Um, And I think I had like rented a Netflix disc at some point 10, 15 years ago to watch it and just it didn't hook me. So now with the pandemic and lockdown, I had someone who was super excited for me to watch three seasons of his all time favorite thing. And three years later, I am still three quarters <laughs> of the way through season two because it's like pulling teeth for me to watch an episode of this show. Um, we could not be more opposite. Yeah. I was one of my notes that I wrote down for coming on today was like, I'm amazed at how fast the pilot sucks you in. Like <laughs> <laughs> the pilot is strong, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So uh, I was asked to watch the show, also, and this is why I'm watching it. Um, It's weird how, like, you know, there's, like, just existing in a pop culture space, you know about Twin Peaks, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and and I think there's a lot of things like that that we talk about where you're, like, you kind of are, like, oh, I'm already familiar with this thing that I've never watched before, right? Um, And it was one of those shows that I was always, like, I'll watch that eventually. But I never did. Like, there was no, like, self-motivation to actually, like, put it on. So when I finally watched it, oh, sorry, the only other thing that I connected to Twin Peaks was that Kyle MacLachlan was on Sex in the City. Yeah. Yes. And I remember being like, when he shows up in Sex in the City, being like, oh, that's the fucking creepy ass dude from Twin Peaks, knowing nothing about Twin Oy. Peaks. So when I put it on like a couple months ago, I was like, Oh, he's not a creepy, murdery dude. I don't know why in my head I had Hard manufactured that Kyle MacLachlan was a creepy, murdery dude. No, okay, I, I'm fair. telling you right now, and and I think this is very key to an understanding of how I see this show. As far as I've gotten in season two, I do know who who killed Laura Palmer. I'm not going to reveal that for you. Anymore. No, don't tell me. I don't know. I'm not yet. going I'm to. I'm so mad that I. I'm don't not know going to. Yet, but though. listen, the show has told me who it wants me to think did it. 
You cannot convince me it wasn't Cooper. He is the creepiest murdery creepo I've ever seen on television. And I'm like, no, I there's got to be a twist. So there's got to be a twist. Like, reveal it. Make it make sense. Because he, to me, is ceaselessly... I, I get so physically uncomfortable when Cooper is on screen. That's amazing. I'm sorry to have okay. interrupted, but that's my, my no, biggest no. problem with the show. No, I, which is amazing because he's like my favorite part of the show. Like <laughs> I absolutely fucking love him so much. So what I was startled by is I thought that it was like um, based on literally nothing, I guess. I thought Twin Peaks was like kind of weird horror serious. And so I watched the pilot and I was like, this is fucking funny, funny. Mm -hmm. like really funny and like very caricatured. And like you quickly learn or I quickly realize that it's like a a spoof on soap operas, right? Like when you can like lean into that and understand that that's what's happening as opposed to just these like way over the top. But the over the topness on most of the characters for me still is within a an, like an acceptable range where you're still kind of like bought in, but you're not like, well, that's like, you know, 10 times too much or whatever. Like there's, there's a really interesting balance that I think the creators have done in the, the character design of most of the characters. I think someone like Leo, I would put in that like just way over the top, like mm-hmm. what, like far and away over the top. Whereas everyone else is just kind of whatever. Some of Bobby's um, eye lines are a bit intense in the pilot. Yeah. yeah. Yes, him yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by how you intro to all of this, Lena, because there's such caricatures mm. It, there's such characters and there's such an obsession or or at least not an obsession, but there's such a prevalence of like violence against women as a through thread in this whole thing um, that I don't I think I don't quite connect why you're like these men are written as people yeah. and that like if Lynch has this utopian vision of the world, why is he focused on this stuff? Yeah. So one of the things I like about it and to sort of explain my statement before a bit more about it showing men as people I think in Twin Peaks, one of the things I really liked about, especially the pilot, is that people were horrified by horrible things. It wasn't seen as a given. It wasn't seen as a force of nature. It wasn't seen as inevitable. And so much media about violence against women and IRL coverage of violence against women sort of presents male violence as this unstoppable force of nature that can't, you know, we can't do anything about it. It's just going to happen. And what did she expect? And like the, the, the forensic examination of the victim, you know, and, and what she did wrong to get in that position is really leaned on really, really heavily at the moment. It has been for a long time. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I feel like, you know, you see, um, oh, who finds her body? Pete? Is it Pete? Yeah. Pete finds her body. He's mm-hmm. really shaken by that. He's like trembling and upset. Andy's crying when they're at the tram thing, you know, like he's moved by it and everyone who finds out about it, you know, they go through the school and they go through the announcement and all that. Everyone's actually horrified by this horrified thing that happened. And I was really taken by that because that's such a basic thing. It sounds ridiculous to even say, but I feel like seeing people be moved by it instead of like, well, you know, those things happen, you know, mm. well, where was she? What, what, she, what was she doing? Where was, what was she wearing? You know, um, I feel like, it shows it as a a real blight, like male violence, as a as a, a something that's wrong, you know, 
and it's, and a decision that's been made and, and it's antisocial behavior. Like it's framed as something that um, people sort of get seduced into doing, you know, like, like sort of ruined. It's like a corruption within themselves. And I feel like um, I like that idea better than the idea that violence is inherent in men. Like that just doesn't square with my my utopia of the world that I want to see, especially as someone with two sons. You know, I don't want to think that, you know, every guy I look at is a potential rapist, you know, because they're just not mm-hmm. like it's not it's not accurate. I can see why trauma would make people, you know, very quick to think that and that's, you know, a valid response. But I think I think with this work, you're seeing men not jump straight to upholding the patriarchy, right? So you're sort of seeing them by being horrified by it, they're like, oh my God, that's terrible. What a waste. Like they're like, oh my God, you know, that poor woman instead of making excuses for the murderer, like without even knowing who it is yet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And we see that a lot, I think. So I think that's what I meant by uh, sort of writing men as people. Yeah. Hmm. Kat, how did you respond to that? You, you just had like this moment of revelation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the maybe the characters versus the show. So yeah. I don't think that's true of the show itself. That may be true of the characters, but by virtue of the fact that immediately we have to find out that Laura is a ruined woman and she does have this darkness, I think that is the show putting this horribly violent consequence on a girl for sexuality and sex work and drug use. Maybe the characters aren't doing that. They're investigating it a little bit more. Um, But in general, you know, and thinking about like overall the, the show at large, I think I'm, I'm really disinterested in spending time with men who are fixated on beautiful young girls. Yeah. And that to me is what the show is doing most of the time. Yeah. So like I cannot, and I've actually said, because I think there's so much aesthetic beauty to the show. I do really love it when it gets funny. I love it when it gets really soapy. Um, So far, I've enjoyed season two better than I did the first season because it's sort of weirder and stupider in some ways. <laughs> but overall, so I've said, like, you know, I can enjoy this show as long as, like, five of the main characters aren't on screen. But when they are, <laughs> I'm so deeply irritated. And, like, I've asked my boyfriend, I was like, just tell me there's going to be some redemption. Tell me that at some point Cooper's going to get his just desserts for being a big perv all the time. And he's like, no, the show isn't going to do that because it doesn't see him that way. And I think that I lack maybe the the optimism or the, like, open-heartedness to be able to see him in that way. I despise Andy. If he's on screen, get me out of there. I want to fast forward. Because I dislike the concept that a an adult with the intellect of a child would be in a position of law enforcement. Like, that to me is really troubling. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, really upsetting to me to see that and to think that, like, he's supposed to be handling a murder investigation and he's losing his marbles. Yeah. Um, like, to me, I was like, uh-oh, something's fishy here in Twin Peaks and not just in the percolator. Like... There's there's bad news in the 
institutions here. Yeah. And everything's upholding, you know, whoever the richest guy is in town has, owns a brothel or whatever the deal is. Like, I am not ever at ease in this environment. And that's I think that's a big think difference. They're going to do bad things, even if they're not going to do bad things. You know what I mean? Yeah. But also, I don't think you're supposed to be at ease watching this show. Sometimes. Right. Like, I think you're supposed to feel like, you know, it, there's a ramping, there's an uncomfortableness. Yeah. Of, uh, and I to think, the unknown and the uncertainty and everybody is suspicious, you know? And a lot of this is going to come from, you know, I didn't watch Star Wars until I was in my 20s. I've never seen so it. it didn't have a magic. Same. Same. I've never seen it. It, it didn't have you. hold yeah, any magic right. for me because I felt like I already knew its cultural footprint. I already mostly knew like whatever the big outcomes were going to be. So I do think part of it is coming to this after watching so many things that it has inspired mm. and loving Veronica Mars or whatever, and then watching this and just thinking like, yeah, Wait, Veronica Mars was inspired by Twin Peaks? <laughs> of course, right? I mean, any, I mean or like Dallas. makes like, so much sense now. Yeah, she's a little down. Yeah, like. Yeah, and the murder, the mystery of her best friend. I mean, I've watched Veronica Mars like three times. Yeah. Wow, yeah. okay. Great, can I, great. Cool. And so, you know, I think, okay, well, do I just have this cynicism that a viewer in 1990 might not have had because they would be like, here we are in this small town where you can smell the Douglas firs and what could possibly be amiss? Whereas I'm like, everyone here is a suspect. Yeah. Like, I am just coming to it from a place that I can't shake. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, I think part of that is like, I first saw Kyle MacLachlan in Showgirls, so I'm like expecting him to be yeah. different, and he's not to me a good enough actor to shake off um, previous roles. But that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think I like yeah. this because of it's a place I can take off that cynicism. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is like a relief to me because I have it in every other like thing. Like I'm always like, oh, that guy's yeah, that guy's shifty. You know, and I feel like a lot of the media, a lot of true crime I'm stuff that we're witnessing at the moment is like, you know, constantly being, you know, skeptical of someone all the time. And I don't want to go through the world like that. That's why true crime stuff like squicks me out because, you know, well, there's mm -hmm. many reasons why true crime stuff squicks me out. But yeah. I'm so fascinated that this is the thing that does that for you. Yeah. Like, it is very confused. Like, I don't understand it. And I'm wondering, is it like, when did you watch Twin Peaks for the first time? Uh, about four years ago. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're newish to it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm finding, uh, I don't know if I ever would have finished the season if we didn't decide to do a podcast about it. Like, I just kept not wanting to go back to it. Wow. Um, even though when I watched the first couple episodes, I was like, wow, there is, uh, I just keep getting really bored, like where I'm just like completely checked out and there'll be whole, there's whole storylines that I'm like, what's happening? I don't know what's happening right now. Um, uh, mostly cause I like looked at my phone and 30 minutes later, the episode's <laughs> over, you know, <laughs> but I think that, um, the, I don't want to discount like the aesthetic and the like tone and the stylizedness of the show, which I think part of is part of what's giving it such a lasting air, right? Mm -hmm. There are 
this is not like an intellectual representation thing, but there are two scenes that I like think are just the best scenes that have ever existed. The first one is when the two shitty brothers who own the hotel, when you first meet the younger brother and he comes back from France and he has the brie <laughs> and butter sandwiches and he just like totally interrupts dinner and they're just like eating the sandwiches from the side and like just like having a massive orgasm over these fucking sandwiches. I just was like this kind of dramatic weirdness with food. There's just so much food shit in here that I think is hilarious. Like the donuts. Fucking donuts. <laughs> and then the other thing that I really loved was when, because the score is so iconic, right? And it's just used so interestingly throughout that there's a scene where I think it was either him, I think it was the father of the the of Audrey, the one that owns the hotel, was listening to like we hear the score and then we cut into the room and then this the, he's listening to the score in the room mm. on the show. There's a word. I forget the word for that. Diegetic. Diegetic. And I was like, oh, that was so brilliant. <laughs> like, it just kind of like these little things that just make it a little like quirky and weird is just so my jam. Right. Like people are just talking and there's like a head of a moose on the yeah. table around <laughs> them. You know, like it's just like like all this. <laughs> Yeah, like the the production design of just having things around mm-hmm. that don't really like they're, they're whimsical, right? They're, it's like a, it's almost like a magical realism element to it, which I really enjoy. And it's kind of an indulgence too, in a lot of ways. Like we've gone from you know some really um, stingy kind of set designs where everything's there for a reason, and you know very stark, like X Files, you know, kind of you know interrogation rooms and all that kind of stuff. The, the idea that there can just be stuff in there for fun is is a thrill, you know, and it's just there because they felt like putting it there. It's got no, no you know, reason for, to be there for the plot or whatever. But I was just thinking too when you're saying about um, the aesthetic and, and how beautiful it is, maybe that's got a lot of play for me as an Australian, you know, looking at mm-hmm. this, this like little, little diorama of what this Pacific Northwest kind of America looks like. Maybe that's playing more with me than it is with you because – you guys are like, well, yeah, seen it. You know know what's funny is I've actually, I didn't even know this, but I have stayed at that fucking hotel next to that waterfall and gone to that goddamn waterfall because it's filmed in Snoqualmie. Snoqualmie. This summer, don't worry, I was brought on a full day's excursion to North Bend, (laughs) Snoqualmie. And remember when this happened? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But yeah, just in retrospect, I was like, wait a second. I've been there before. It is Um, beautiful. It's an absolutely gorgeous gorgeous setting. And I mean, that's – I keep coming back, Lena, to what you said at the beginning, like the ability for these – for Lynch or whomever to be – um, delighted by beautiful women. Mm. I mean, this the the knockout stunners on this show. It's like on the one hand, I get again like, would I have felt this way when if I had watched this when I was in like middle school? No, but now where I'm like, why did they make these? children look like grown women like this they're teenagers and it's upsetting that also feels very much of the time i feel it like it does yeah yeah but it's like there is such beauty to joan chen when she's surrounded by all the lumber you know in and there's something funny about that there is something funny about these like retro fabulous beautiful women 
who are just kind of stuck in a town where nothing happens until a terrible crime happens. So so here's a question. I do have a, a couple questions about the setting or the kind of world building here is that I think a big part of it is that it's supposed to be, you know, FBI agent comes to small town. Like that is a huge part of it. This isn't um this isn't like a gumshoe in film noir Los Angeles or New York. Um but then the fact that there is a supernatural element, I think, is also something that I haven't quite unpacked. And so that's maybe why, like, if I had started watching the show and it was like, disclaimer, there's going to be one person responsible for these crimes and you'll find out who it is. Maybe I wouldn't have gone into it being like, no, there's a conspiracy and everybody and and I don't know what everybody has done wrong because we might be dealing with aliens. We might be dealing with past <laughs> lives. We might be dealing with a dreamscape that can only be acquired through transcendental meditation. Like there is so much that I'm like, I, I don't I don't have my footing at all. I don't feel like I know which way is up. So, you know, I do think a lot of people I know who love the show identify strongly with Cooper in the sense of like, I'm at Disneyland and Twin Peaks is here and look how great it is. And I, um, I'm curious, like if you think that the supernatural element like supports that kind of worldview, like in our idyllic world, bad things don't happen, but it, they might happen in other dimensions and that maybe trickled down here. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's why I find it comforting. I think is because it sort of is, insinuating between the lines that the supernatural is responsible for all the fucked up things that happen in the world. And that's a nice, mm-hmm. like, dumb place to sit, but, like, it's, um, it, it implies that it can be defeated and vanquished and stopped, you know, and that's unlike, you know, nature. I feel like this is a big spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. I'll accept. It's, no, it's no, it's... I, oh, I are you really... talking about the dream stuff? Yeah, like the dream stuff and how all of that is like we're going to find the killer based on these dreams or based on these like clues that are not coming from the natural world. And that is something I think I expected going into it in that like, oh, you know, it's going to be weird kind of way or seeing enough memes and like riffs on the Red Room and people talking backwards and stuff like that. But um yeah, I think that part that's part of what unsettles me is because I don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's sort of him saying, not him, it's not just one person making this whole thing, I've got to stop doing that, but um, I feel like it, that sort of hinting towards stopping and paying attention to the world, which is something that, you know, I say him because that's something he says all the time, that we should be doing that more. And that's why he's such a big fan of transcendental meditation. And, you know, he says that the idea of the Red Room came to him in a car park, like, you know, when he was having a cigarette. So, like, he he was open to the ideas. He thinks that ideas come to him. He doesn't sit down and, like, nut them out like a problem to be solved. So that sort of speaks to his worldview, I think, there a bit in that if you sit and you pay attention enough and if you listen enough, you'll find out what you need to find out at that time. You might not find out the answer, but you'll find out the thing that will get you to the answer. And um, that, oh, I was just about to spoil something big, but there's a scene in the woods mm-hmm. with, um, I'm trying to think of um, the actor. He's like a, a military dude. 
don't know if you're up to that mm-hmm. bit yet. Oh, the father of Bobby? Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. Bob's yeah. Dad. yeah. Mr. Mr. Briggs. Let's just call Commander Briggs or something like that. Um, yeah. That sort of is about sort of paying attention and listening and being being one with the environment to understand it. And I think that's um, that would have been seen as a bit woo-woo, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a very, it's an interesting choice instead of something having to be dominated and vanquished and, you know, defeated. It's sort of insinuating a gentle, a more gentle path. Yeah. I mean, this isn't a spoiler, but I don't recall if this action takes place in seasons one or two, but like, there's a bit of a, like, I'm going to, Cooper's going to use like a divining rod basically to, to solve the crime. Like there's some moment where it's like, if I throw this and land it over there, then it means X. And if it lands over there, it means Y. And yeah, I find that very upsetting (laughs) to think of like, what if this was my my daughter. <laughs> Is this the scene where he's like, you? He threw things at trees, and the way yeah. they landed was what I, I thought. That shit was fucking hilarious. Yeah. Um. I think I, I'm. I'm. Think, I feel like there's a big difference here between like how we are approaching media in general, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, like for example, I hate shows where you hate everybody. Yeah. Like where everybody is a bad person, right? Like I do, I don't do well with those. It's why it took me so long to watch Succession because I was like, uh. And I feel like Cat. What I'm hearing is like the the unsettled nature of some of this and like the uncertainty of some of it is just like really not jiving with you in the way that you approach media. It's definitely a, a through line for me, and and it's not that I need to only watch nice things it it just is tough for me to not know how i'm like i mean i guess that's like saying please spoon feed me with your (laughs) message but but like there for example i I think i talked about this when we had um, mike eagle on i really struggle with adventure time because some of the episodes i'm like is this supposed to make me feel good or bad and i don't know and it just makes me want to throw up and that's how i feel watching (laughs) twin peaks is like i i can i want to either lean into it being funny or i want to have it be like the killing or have it be you know something where i'm like yeah let's get into investigating this weird murder i i like that there are clues and we're gonna find them out and maybe it's gonna be strange but like let's get there but there's something about it that is um I guess it also just, it really never occurred to me to look at it from any kind of optimism or um, generosity of humanity. Like that, that is a shock to me to think that that could be part of the experience of watching Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's, um, I don't know. and, And sometimes that's done by filmmakers with casting like it is i think it's really it is really clever and funny to have like richard bamer and um the guy from west side story uh who plays the psychiatrist um both of them are the guys from west side story but to have these like you know kind of classic hollywood music men in these roles like that is funny to me and interesting um but I'm sorry, I was there was some other thing I was going to bring up and it's escaped me. Um, oh, 
Well, so there are two things I know about David Lynch from like outside the con outside of the actual text that are interesting to me, which is his talk about wanting to tell stories the way that dreams are. Mm. And that in dreams, you might not know how you ended up somewhere, but when you end up there, it makes perfect sense. And that is really interesting to me. And I feel like I've enjoyed that element in his films. Yeah. I haven't really in this show. Season three is going to blow your head off. I think that filmmakers do dreams so badly, like so aggressively badly that um, I've, I want to watch more Lynch because I'm told he's the only one that does dreams, not like does dreams like dreams are. And as someone who has extremely bizarre, vivid dreams, like like I'm like, I want to start doing filmmaking with dreams because I feel like it's always done so bad. Right. And that I love that. Like, um, yeah, I, I like I'd love to to read more about how he thinks about it, about that, because it's true. Like dreams are so, like and what dreams are doing is it's helping us process and understand. And so it doesn't have to make sense, even though it makes sense to you in some very physical way yeah. that is not attached to like your cognitive processes, you know? Yeah, so. definitely. Um, cool. All right. Uh, I will be back. I feel like there's so much to talk about with Twin Peaks that there's no way we can do this justice. But you know, move on, just one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cat. Um, I find the police ineptitude really funny. Like you find it, mm. I find it really funny because he's basically saying the cops have no idea what they're doing, and that's a that's a well. What's behind. what's also funny yeah. is. Uh, fucking Cooper. I like. I know he's a perv. I'm putting that aside. But his like, he, he's a. I mean, actually, well, so I don't know how far this goes. But like his stuff with Audrey, like, and him being like, "Yes, I totally want to fuck you, but I know mouth. I shouldn't." What I was that in season one? I don't. Did care. I was I looking it's at my gross. phone? <laughs> I don't care what it was. <laughs> I have. I don't think I've seen that yet. So yes, that is gross. Anyways, putting that aside, if I may, like his whole like, I am the most perfect detective and can like know everything. And then to have the other cops fawning over him and then him to be like squirrel, you know, just like constantly <laughs> be like the nature and the voice record. Like, I just I think this is one of the funniest, most entertaining characters I've seen in a long time. Just like the dramatic nonsense of who he is and how he operates and the like the 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 tidiness of his line like is like the the lines of his existence not his dialogue i think are just yeah i'm so drawn to him i think kyle mclaughlin does a fucking fabulous job yeah. of that character yeah and so. and they did um, the reboot because they made you wait before you got to see him again oh boy did they make you wait mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm. All right, y'all, we will be right back to share some freakouts. If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax-deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show. So, just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, 
back to the show. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Lena, what have you been up to? Oh, okay. So I'm a writer and I'm working in a horror sort of adjacent genre <laughs> with Dead Static Drive. And I've been wanting to really unpack a lot of those sort of foggy notions of loose concepts that we're playing with in that space um, to make sure I've really got, you know, the vibe exactly where I want it to be. So I've been reading uh, Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie. It's a very small book but it's absolutely blown my head clean open. And it's just sort of taking the concept of the weird and distilling it down into what it is, like what makes something weird and what makes something eerie. And um, the main difference between the two, if I can like paraphrase horribly, um, <laughs> because it's such a good book and it's so much smarter than what I'm about to say, but the weird is that which doesn't belong um, being there. And the eerie is the absence of of stuff. So it's sort of, it's got that sort of floating Ooh. opposites there of how often we think things are weird and eerie and we use the terms really interchangeably. Um, but, you know, where is everyone? Also, you know, those sorts, of, those sorts of existential questions of living in the eerie and then, you know, the what the fuck is that? It sort of lives in the weird, you know. So it's the presence and the absence and those sorts of floating things. Um, really makes me look at other stuff differently and a lot of my work as well going over it and thinking I was hoping to invoke this sort of feeling here but I could see where I've not hit the mark because I was treating it as weird when actually it was eerie or you know the other way around so that's just been like blowing my head open and I've started doing it with um like my own journaling and stuff like holding together like resilience and grace and like smishing the two together and like seeing where the overlap is and seeing how they're different and everything. And, and just sort of, I've been trying to do some sense-making, I think, after the pandemic. Um, <laughs> mm. If I just take some concepts and mash them together, that seems to be what I'm freaking out about. That book sounds amazing. And also this is making me think of, so in, in your like in journaling, I'm doing this in my SE work, the somatic experiencing work, we've been talking a lot about coupling emotions and how oh. you can overcouple emotions or undercouple emotions, right? And that's kind of feels in a similar vein to what you're talking about of like when these things are together and when they're separate and if those benefit you or don't benefit you as you're going through life. You yeah, know? that's fascinating. Yeah, I'd like to know like, yeah. is it like a self-soothing behavior that I'm trying to couple things together or decouple things that should be mm. together? You know, it might be. Yeah, it might be. Who knows? <laughs> I have to say, this yeah. has been like a very therapeutic conversation, <laughs> actually. Oh. I'm realizing, you know, I know, no surprise, I've, I've suff suffered from anxiety. And I realize that sense of not knowing how I'm supposed to feel is like a fight or flight yeah. uh, problem. Is like, no, but tell me, am I safe here? Or do I need to be concerned? And that is such an interesting thing to think about. Like mm. those these past couple of years with the pandemic, that has been completely thrown into disarray. And people who suffer from like a obsessive compulsive disorder have really said, well, now what? <laughs> now how am I supposed to parse the information that I'm getting? Because we've all dealt with such a, um, a sense of like things aren't normal. Where do I find normal? What is weird and what is the new normal and that's such an interesting thing to think about in this time especially absolutely yeah yeah 
Anita, I all, I just caught up on your freak out. Tell me what you're thinking about this week. Have you watched the show? Finally have. Just- I, I <laughs> waited for no okay. good reason. Okay, I have not finished yet watching Bad Sisters, but I wanted to to talk about it. So it's a show, Bad Sisters, on Apple TV. Um, it is so delightful. <laughs> I'm enjoying it so much. Um, I It's about a group... Okay, so here's the... Th- here, okay, okay, okay. I am enjoying it and also, like, really uncomfortable, right? And that is the point of the show. It is okay to feel that way in this space, even though it's, like, infuriating. So um, there are these five sisters, and one of them is married to an abusive man who meddles in everybody's business um, and is extremely controlling of her. And the sisters uh, decide that they miss the sister who is being who is in an abusive relationship and decide that they need to kill her husband. So they are bad sisters. <laughs> so that so it's like a comedy, but also like a dramedy, I guess would be what we call those things now. Um, it is very if you have if you have a hard time watching abuse and manipulation and gaslighting, like this is not the show for you. I find it like there's points where I'm like, okay, we get it already, you know, where we're like, we really, I, I, we understand that this dude is bad. Like, how many new levels of bad can we introduce to this person? Um, but I think that the the casting and the performances are wonderful. I think that the dialogue uh, and the writing is really smart and witty. Like, I am so invested in the lives of these characters. Um, I think I have two episodes left to watch, so I reserve like final judgment for how they wrap this up. Obviously, as we've gotten further and things are like um, uh, building more, there have definitely been moments where I'm like, "What the fuck? Why did they do that?" Or like, "Why did this person yeah. say this thing?" Or like, you know, you're like trying to pin things together that are a little too neat or a little too like obvious. But I don't think that that is um, ruining my experience overall of how much I'm enjoying the the show, and. This fucking music, um, whoever's doing the the sound design, like there's a lot of like pop music in it of doing killing it, just like amazing soundtrack to this thing. That's the fifth recommendation I've had for Bad Sisters in the last like. Two weeks. <laughs> right, I have to do it now. It's, I have yeah. to do it. I think you'll appreciate it. It took me a couple of episodes. Like I love Sharon Horgan, so I was like ready to love it, and then I was like, oh, okay, like this seems a little simple maybe and then I think Anita they have to do that because you have to they have to keep like pulling you along and saying like no but he really he really deserves it he's really gonna get it and you kind of have to like really earn that then the show totally does and I was totally surprised by the ending also so which I think is also funny because I have theories about how this is going to end too <laughs> actually but it's 10 episodes and they're an hour each so like every episode you're just being taught more and more how this guy's like they just have to keep doing it right because that's part of telling the story uh, but as someone who is very familiar with abusive men like I was like I don't need any more convincing like first episode I got you like I'm here you know so. so Sharon Hogan did divorce as well, right? I think the Sarah Jessica Parker Thomas Hayden Church series. I think. Well, I don't know. She, she may have written it. I think she wrote it. As well. Oh yeah, that's really- she did catastrophe with Rob Delaney. Yep, yep. That's really interesting because I think with divorce, you were sort of rooting for one, and then you were rooting for the other, then you were rooting for the other, then you were rooting for mm. the other, and it swapped and swapped and swapped. And Bad Sister sounds like they just one side, boom, like, and you're just sitting there the whole time. So maybe it was her break from 
I mean, to be fair. <laughs> also, it's an adaptation. Oh, okay. um, I think it was a Turkish show originally. Um, but she is so clever with dialogue. And yeah, yeah I mean, the cast, uh, Eve Hewson, who I really loved on The Nick, um, the young man from Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Um, and uh, a Gleason. There's always got to be a Gleason in an Irish show. <laughs> um, it's great. And it's also beautiful. I kept being like, they live in the most beautiful place ever. <laughs> it's all these like shots of Ireland. It's gorgeous. Um, anyways, that is my freak out. If y'all are watching it, let me know what you think. Uh, Kat, what's your freak out? Um, I am freaking out about a movie that I just saw because it's on HBO Max, I think it was at Sundance this year, called We're All Going to the World's Fair. It's from the filmmaker Jane Schoenbrunn, and it's about creepypasta. And so that's not something I'm super familiar with. Like, I'm aware of it, but uh, I think that really had a stranglehold on the internet when I was maybe in my 20s. And so not as like involved in the culture as perhaps younger people, children and teenagers were at the time. And I remember, you know, of course, the Slenderman case and then the subsequent Hollywood Slenderman movie. And so I really didn't know going into this. I, I, I knew it was about a, a, a troubled teen who takes the World's Fair challenge. And is eager to, you know, I'd watch the trailer. So that's kind of what I knew. She's eager to see if and how she will change after taking this challenge by watching the video and reciting um, a mantra and pricking her finger with a pin. And what I thought was really cool about it is from about the first half of the movie, it's really, you really don't know, is this going to be the type of film that has a perspective that is like, no, this is a horror movie and creepypastas are real and the Slender Man is going to come getcha. Or is it a movie that's about how being isolated and having access to niche corners of the internet can be the scary thing? And so it was really interesting to follow it, uh, follow the kind of journey that is mostly... I don't know what we call this. It's not like found footage, but the John... Um, the John Cho movie Searching was like this, where most of the movie is just like from computer screens. Um, I'll, not all of it. There's there's definitely just like cameras that follow her. Um, but yeah, just to, to really focus in on this one compelling young actor and how isolation as a teenager is totally different in this era than it was even when we were teenagers. You know, we had the internet, but it wasn't the same. And it it wasn't like the type of thing where you could be live streaming or posting to YouTube your breakdowns and your hours on end of uh, anguish. And that's something that kids can do. So it was really, yeah, it's my freak out because I wouldn't say it's not an enjoyable movie going experience. Um, even... I think I was like, I'm going to watch a scary movie. And instead I was like, Ugh. <laughs> this is, this is um, scary in a lot of different ways. And then I also just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I had one other movie to, to mention. So if you had thoughts on the creepypasta of it all. Um, 
there was this was maybe going to be my freak out, but I haven't watched it in a couple of years. Is a documentary called My Beautiful Broken Brain. Have you seen that? No. No. It is it's a documentary made by a, a young woman, I believe she's Dutch, about the brain episode that she had where I, I don't know if you would say it was a stroke, but she had a brain episode. And after the episode, she saw the world like David Lynch does, as she believes. And I believe David Lynch actually like executive produced or associate produced the documentary because she had met him at a screening. She was a huge fan of his and she lined up and she was like, I love you so much. I had this brain episode and now I have aphasia and I don't quite see things right. And I have language problems and I see colors upside down and all these different things. I'm making a documentary about it. And he was like, oh, great. I'll help it get released. Whoa. So it's like this very this? Lynchian. Yeah, it's like, oh my God. it's so interesting because she doesn't uh, process like language and stimuli the same way that she did before her event. And she's trying to tell that story, but she's painting with a completely different like palette than we are then we can watch her story with. So it's a, that documentary actually gave me so much more appreciation for David Lynch because I felt like it was a, a real full body experience to walk through the world like that. So, um, what was it called? I think it's called my beautiful broken brain. Yeah, I've written it. Hmm. Oh. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. Thank you. What a good- I will be curious, <laughs> Lena, actually, please like tweet at me <laughs> once you've watched it. Cause I, I want to talk about nobody's ever heard of it. And I, it was one of those like Netflix, I'm going to watch a medical documentary. And then it was a completely different thing. Um, wow. Pretty cool. I think I saw that, but I thought it was like, there seems to be a lot of stuff about like psychedelics and stuff and brains and, you know, on the, on Netflix at the moment. So I think I just thought it was one of those probably and just scrolled past. Well, they did make a movie with Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh-huh. where she like has a stroke or something and starts acting strange and gets um uh hospitalized like yeah. institutionalized i think but that's not what i'm talking about <laughs> this is a documentary <laughs> what a good bookend for the episode too today have an ending on david lynch <laughs> that's great this has been really cool um i Loved talking to you both. And I I feel like now I'm going to be a much better girlfriend and go volunteer to watch the next episode of Twin Peaks instead of saying, yeah, I guess you can put it on, but I have some work I have to do. (laughs) (laughs) Lena, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us more about the game you're working on or where people can follow you? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Lena Van D, two E's because I'm very greedy. Um, and the game is Dead Static Drives. That's on Twitter as well if you want to follow that. Um, we post GIFs and stuff. You'll see that it does have some sort of Lynchian aesthetics in some ways. Um, there's definitely some Pacific Northwest action going on in there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's coming when it's finished. Everyone's very impatient. That's a nice, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice place to sit. But, you know, like I've been saying, we've got to make sure that it's everything we want it to be before we can get rid of it. Um, <laughs> uh, and, yeah, basically Twitter is probably the best place to talk to me about writing and, um, and games and uh, writing in games. 
awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and doing Thanks this. Thanks for having me. Uh, Desktop Drive looks awesome, and Lena's fucking hilarious, so you should definitely go follow both of those accounts. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on all the things. If you're bouncing off of Twitter, uh, as many people are doing right now, I'm on Instagram because, you know, Facebook is better, right? That was a big sarcastic statement that did not come out sarcastic at all. It was totally... Yeah. Fail, big fail. <laughs> yeah. I'm Kat Spada, and you can find me on Twitter. Cat <laughs> underscore EX underscore Machina. <laughs> I mean, my Instagram, I don't uh, have it's not public. public, but I don't know yeah. why. Like, there's nothing there where I'm like... I don't know. No, no, no. Maybe no. you don't need to. You don't need to process this on the podcast right now. <laughs> My Instagram was private for a long time too. Uh, I stopped doing private Instagram when they introduced close friends. Yeah, that's well, what I did. I've but I, I'm enough. not leaving. I'm not leaving Twitter. Like any, it's not. I'll still be on Twitter. I mean, I'm not. This is all. They're all owned by terrible people. We just know that Elon Musk is like extremely terrible. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. We'll see what happens. And you can still follow Feminist Frequency on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and probably other places at FemFreak. <laughs> uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our special guest, Lena Van D. <laughs> Two E's. Um, and if you like our show, please help other people find it. You can rate us five stars on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts every time you listen. I have recently discovered this, but if you listen to other apps, Spotify, Pocket Casts, give us a comment, give us a rating. You make me feel welcomed as our newest teammate. <laughs> right. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.